Hi, David. Hey, Todd. Uh, Hi. Well, it's been a little while since uh, we've talked, but uh, uh, I thought today we'd talk about your journey to Carnegie Mellon and uh, also uh, I wanted had a, a quick question uh, right off. Uh, what was what is the what was the current state of Ralph now? Is it being worked on? Are there people that are um, taking the code base and expanding it? Or has it been used in any type of open source projects? Um, so really the last time I had a direct involvement with Ralph was in 2006. And at that point, the company that owned that intellectual property was sold and sort of have lost track. I mean, I don't know if it's incorporated in any, you know, commercial products now or it, it was just, you know, let go. So I, I really don't have an answer for that. Wow. And have you thought about, um, I know we, we just briefly mentioned, talked about why Ralph couldn't uh, navigate in the city or it have, would have difficulty on unmarked roads um is that be why would that be a challenge it would seem like you could take the road and just say well if it's this wide uh stay on the right side if you're in you know countries that you drive in you know uh on the right side of the road kind of uh figure out where the center of the road is and then try not to be in the center of that road uh, why would it be so difficult to have a machine be able to figure that out? Well, I, I don't think that the actual, like finding the road part of driving is, you know, is really particularly hard anymore. Um, the hard thing about, you know, driving in any of those conditions besides interstate highways is there's so much uncertainty about what else is around you. You know, the proximity of other cars, cross traffic, people coming out from behind cars, bicycles, motorcycles, all that kind of stuff is is something that at least for Ralph and really for almost all the technology we developed back in the 90s was wasn't really even thought of. Um, you know, we had the you know, what I think were pretty great successes by narrowing down what we were trying to do to very specific things in very specific situations. Um, so yeah, Ralph could work okay on city streets and yeah, it would do this and that, but it was really designed to work great on interstate highways with structured markings of some type. Well, it seems like it's almost like a video game. Uh, when you pro and I've seen where um, I think it's MIT, they basically do a video game. And uh, one thing about video games is you have a central loop, and then uh, inside that central loop, you can spawn off uh, different processes. And basically, each one of the processes are doing certain things. Like you'll have one that might might be running a sprite in the back or in the background. You might be having one that's uh, running music. And you have another process that uh, might be doing uh, uh, edge detections 
uh, where if you're if it's a bounded box. And so it's like a video game in the sense that you can have all these multiple processes running and they do have kind of like discrete rules. Uh, and like we were talking about before, Ralph had domain knowledge. It had specific things that, uh, yeah, it, it did really well, but it, it could find a lateral line on the road. And it said, okay, stay in the lateral lines. Don't go off uh, these lateral lines. If you get in a situation where you can't determine a lateral line, fall back to a uh, an alert where you sound an alarm that uh, the driver takes over or something like that. It seems like city driving is just like a video game in some ways because you have uh, you have lateral lines, you have structures around you, you have uh, uh, flat surface areas, but at the same time you have a lot of uh, things that are going on, like, like you said, like lateral intersections, cars going uh, different directions. And it seems like you could apply those objects to almost like a video game where it's, it's uh, running algorithms for detecting lateral line, uh, horizontal cross intersections where cars are going across your intersect path, uh, bicycles riding that you, you have kind of like a bounded box around them so that you don't run into them. And then you're, you're doing a combination of neural net and, uh, you know, like state machinery. So, I mean, I don't generally think the structure of the software or, you know, different threads that do different things. I don't really think any of that is the problem. You know, I think you what you're hitting hit on the head a little bit in that. Yeah, well, you, yes, you can come up with something to detect lateral lines. And yes, you can come up with something to detect the road. But the fundamental problem is even with billions of miles of recorded traffic, we still haven't seen everything. And we haven't seen enough examples of, of things to make it really robust uh, in those complicated scenarios. So, you know, I'm kind of of the opinion that, you know, yeah, if we can see and we can know everything we have to detect, we have the sensors and we have the algorithms that can do it. But I still don't think we're even close to having seen everything and in particular, all combinations of things and circumstances that these vehicles are going to uh, they're going to they're going to have to address. Now, maybe we don't need to see them all. Right. I'm you know, I'm not going to advocate we have to have, you know, complete knowledge, but at least we have to have enough so that we can reasonably generalize to new situations. And I, you know, and, and we'll see. I mean. I, Tesla, in spite of them saying they have full self-driving, their vehicles aren't anywhere close to that yet on city streets. Uh, so it's a very hard problem. And, you know, I, I think we're moving towards it, but it's a it's a slog. It's a long journey. Well, it's kind of like when you have a video game and you have characters that are in the game. So you have opponent and then you have your character that's interacting with those those uh, uh, objects like you have people that are walking, you have people that are riding bicycles, you have cars that are driving. And, uh, and the machine has to keep track of where all these objects are and what they're doing, whether they're going to possibly cross your path. And they can detect whether they'll cross the path or maybe they'll detect uh, uh, maybe something stationary and they have to go around it. And so it, it can kind of be reduced into uh, terms of bounds. You don't run into things that are uh, 
above maybe six feet high that are stationary. That's, you know, a no-no. So you'll go around that. You could detect, okay, this object's six feet high. I don't want to run into that. Or if something is moving uh, uh, out of a driveway into the road and you can see the object's moving and it does a, you know, a beast blind calculate where it possibly will go. So the neural net says, okay, this is a possible path. My path is going to intersect that path. I don't want to, I don't want to possibly run into that car. So I'm going to, you know, shift to the left if I safely can do that and go around them or uh, break and, and uh, you know, let the uh, uh, avoid a collision or something like that. So there seems like there's some domain knowledge, you know, that you can program that's really deterministic. That's almost like a video game uh, in addition to all this AI where it's, it's dealing with the uncertainty, uh, things that may we, yet may not be programmed in the video game per se. And then it, it uh, uh, maybe at that point it can learn. So it learns this uh, new train of a road that's kind of slightly tilted. And so it doesn't think, uh, you know, the tilt in the road is a non-road surface it, it it handles the tilt in the road because it's learned from from those angles yeah I, I mean yeah we can those rules all make sense and i'm sure that's a large part of some of these these groups are working now to to come up with those rules um you know i think the the thing with the video game though is in the video game the game has complete knowledge of what the world looks like so its rules can more or less operate perfectly. There's no ambiguity. You know, there is, there's literally no ambiguity in sensing. Um, you know, in the real world, you know, I, I think we have superhuman sensors, but there's still some ambiguity if you're seeing, you know, for example, a, a cardboard cutout of a person or a person. Uh, and, you know, that's a simple example, but things like that. So, yeah, I think you could create a nearly perfect driving rule set that worked in simulation. And then I think, you you know, it would take quite a bit of work to make that work in the real world because you have to deal with uncertainty. Yeah, and even when I was watching uh, Comma 2 and it was driving in the city, uh, there was some construction on the right-hand side. He, it, uh, the, it was an unmarked road, kind of, uh, it was in the city. So, you know, it was, uh, I, I think it might have been one way. I'm not sure on that, but it, it was unmarked road. And uh, there was an intersection. He had, there was a bicyclist that was coming across the interstate. Uh, and, uh, and the mailman or the mail truck slammed on his brakes a little bit to stop. And then the bicyclist goes by him and he proceeds forward. And the, uh, the car steering was uh, kind of going left and right, left and right, left and right. And there was a high degree of uncertainty. Like it was tried to figure out, you know, from all the, like you said, all the uncertainty around it, uh, what to do. Yeah. But it seemed to be out pretty good. I mean, it didn't, it didn't run into any walls or it, it didn't uh, slab on the brake or anything. It just kept going. Well, yeah. I mean, I, that, that seems reasonable, I guess. I mean, I'm not exactly familiar with, with that example, but yeah, that, that seems plausible. Okay. Well, I, um, I'll send you that video. It's, it's pretty interesting. He, he said that, uh, 
their their code is an open source code base. Uh, they have a lot of developers around the world that um, use it and modify it so they can fork off the the code base. And uh, and they also uh, he has a hardware device because he said mobile uh, gets too hot, it consumes too much energy. So uh, it was and it's not as reliable. So they have a hardware that they download. I think it's Python. It looks like Python code. It might be something else, but I think it's Python. And then um, it transmits code to the um, uh, driver assist. So you plug the computer into the driver assist module, computer module, and then now your uh, your your self-driving car code is uh, it's activated by cruise control, and then it it uh, 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 it affects the steering wheel, the gas, and the brake. Huh. So, cool. Yeah, so it's cool, and it reminded me a lot of Ralph because Ralph did a lot of the same things: it, it steering wheel, brake, and I don't know if it could do acceleration, but it. You, I don't think you had to keep your foot on the pedal all the time, did you? Yeah. So Ralph, Ralph was just the steering wheel, and then we built other subsystems that did the brake and the throttle, um, and then there was sort of like an integration layer as well. But Ralph's technically was just the vision system that, that looked at the road and controlled the steering wheel. Cool. Well, how did you get to, to Carnegie Mellon? What was your road there? Um, it's, <laughs> it's kind of funny, actually. Uh, so I did my undergrad at Indiana State University in Terre Haute, Indiana. And one day going to class on the bulletin board, um, I saw one of those flyers that had the little tear-off slips for going to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and sort of I, I called up the number on the slip. I asked for an application. They sent me one in the mail. Um, and I applied. Um, I applied to, to CMU and to Michigan and to Florida for grad school. Um, I got into all those places. Uh, but the kind of the, the thing that got me to CMU was um, I was at football practice and I came back and my roommate had left a note for me basically saying, Hey, you need to call this guy from Carnegie Mellon. He has a question for you. Um, and my roommate didn't hear the name correctly or didn't remember it, it but it was Takeo Kanade who at the time was the director of the, kind of newly founded Robotics Institute there. Um, so I called Takeo back and, you know, told him my name and he said, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so he said, I saw your application to the Department of Electrical Engineering. Um, he said, I saw that your interests were in robotics and computer vision. And I wanted you to know that we just started a specialized robotics PhD program here at Carnegie Mellon and that I think you'd be a good fit. And if you want me to, I can move your application over to there and you know, we would accept you in the PhD program for robotics. So I said, okay, you know, that sounds great. Uh, let me talk to my, my fiance and to my parents about it and see what they think and I'll get back to you. So he told me, well, that's fine, but you need to call me by tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. because I'm leaving for Japan and I need to know before I leave. Um, so this is obviously before, this is in 1990, 89, I guess, before the uh, internet. So 
you know, the course of the next couple hours, I talked to everybody I needed to talk to. And the next morning I called them back and told them, yeah, I want to do it. And kind of, you know, that's where it all began. Um, moved to Pittsburgh in the fall of 90 and started working in his lab, uh, in Takeo's lab for Chuck Thorpe in the NavLab project. And, you know, sort of from there through 95, 96, 97, we, you know, worked on developing these technologies for self-driving cars. And, and you have a PhD, right? So yeah. what did your PhD, uh, uh, what was your project? It was, a, it was it the vision system, Ralph vision system. Has that become your PhD so, uh, dissertation? Yeah, my dissertation actually was using the lane keeping system before Ralph, which was called Alvin, it was neural network based. Uh, it was using that and uh, movable cameras, cameras on pan tilts on vehicles to enable things like changing lanes and finding intersections and taking out off ramps and avoiding obstacles. So it was more of a, it was more of a systems PhD with a little bit of computer vision put into it. So it sounds like uh, that was pretty heavy on the hardware. You're putting new, uh, building the subsystems, the hardware subsystems to interface uh, with the vision system. Yeah, yeah, there was yeah, there was lots of you know cameras and pan tilts and obviously computing. Uh, that was about you know I'd say a third to forty percent, and the other sixty percent was just writing the software to kind of resample images to coordinate the camera control based on what the actions were um things like that so wh where did you get your inspiration for the neural net on uh alvin did you was that from a class that you had taken or were you thinking about signal processing and so and uh, dean parmelo created alvin for his phd about three years before i got there and he was one of my co-advisors um and at the time, Alvin was the state of the art. Uh, so, it, you know, it wasn't some eureka moment. It was more like, well, you know, my advisor wrote this thing. It's the best thing out there. Let's use that. And, and uh, what about the neural net? Did, would you just, uh, did you utilize his technology for the neural net? Was it? Uh, yeah, it was uh, a simple... Was it a really efficient, simple neural net, or was it a very efficient neural net? Uh, it was extreme. It was, I mean, very, very simple. It had a, a 30 by 32 unit input layer, which it was fed a picture of the road. It had four hidden units and then like a 25 unit output layer that was the steering direction. So it's three layers, you know, I don't know, a couple thousand nodes, and it could operate probably about 10 or 15 times per second it could cycle through wow that's really efficient if you are do you think if you were to put that on an rc racer and put it around the uh like uh a track how would it perform um i mean i think now you could easily get it on that size computing i think the biggest issue would be you know, you would need some kind of markings with, a, you know, lane markings or shoulder markings or something that were at the right scale for the RC racer. I mean, those racers are only a few inches off the ground versus, you know, six, seven feet. 
So you couldn't, you know, I don't think if you put an RC racer on a normal sized road, it would work particularly well. But if you scale everything down, I think it would work probably about the same. Yeah, I was thinking like I, I've seen where uh, it's Amazon. They have a, a uh, robot and it uses reinforcement learning, which is a deep neural uh, deep learning network. And uh, they've done they have a contest every year and it's a price. It's a cash price contest to see who can uh, develop an RC racer that can get around the track uh, the fastest. And the and the lanes uh, are marked. They have like, a, I think, some sort of tape. Yeah. And it's just basically goes around in a circle, and then you know it has a little bit of uh, some contouring, but it's uh, time based. So they're seeing how fast uh, the device will go with the neural net. Oh sure, yeah. I mean, if it, yeah. I mean, that makes sense as long as the markings are to scale. I think it could definitely work. Wow, that'd be awesome. To uh, and uh, it's uh, those are those are inspiring ideas, you know, because. Uh, it's only a thousand neurons. I mean, you look at the uh, the FSD when it's got, you know, I don't know how many neurons, but uh, it's got a, a lot. lot. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's in the millions or not. Um. So, um, what what was it like uh, at uh, CMU? Did you like the university? Uh, was it a good experience? Oh. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. Um, the, at that time, and you know, I can't name it all, but there were probably five or six or seven researchers or people that became superstars in their respective fields. Um, you know, Raj Reddy was there, Takeo, Chuck, all these machine learning people were there. Um, you know, we had gotten money from DARPA to do the fundamental research, which was very, you know, very open-ended. We could more or less do whatever we wanted to do. Uh, the administration was extremely supportive. They gave us lab space. You know, they signed off on us doing on-road testing, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, Chuck Thorpe, who went on to become the Robotics Institute um, Dean, he was one of my thesis advisors and, you know, he provided support for us to do you know, all the stuff we wanted to do. He did all the administrative stuff so we could do all the fun technical stuff. So it was an incredible experience. Um, you know, I think I, I've told a lot of people this, but I think the best six letters in the alphabet are CMU PhD because it's really opened up a ton of doors for me. Did you ever meet Red? With yeah, her? yeah. Red was there in the Field Robotics Center. Yeah, he he's... Uh... He, he seems to have uh, carried on uh, and then wasn't there the uh, uh, one of um, I think it's Google with the Google car. He led the he I think he started at CMU and went to Stanford, but he led the, you know, this, the Google car. Yeah. So um, Sebastian Thrun is who you're talking about. Yes. And, uh, yes. He was at CMU when we were there. He was more in CS. And he got involved in the robotic car stuff a little bit later. Um, Red Whitaker, who is this huge personality, larger than life figure, he he got involved in the DARPA Grand Challenge and, and was most interested in off-road uh, driving technologies. Um, so yeah, 
all those people, Chris Ermson, who worked with Sebastian Thrun, who then founded, uh, or who worked at Waymo, who then founded some other company was there at the same time. So there was just tons and tons and tons of people there that were really smart people all working on the same sort of projects. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think it was Red that said that um, they were looking, you know, this DARPA challenge was also, they were thinking about applying that to the moon because you have these, uh, you have these rovers and it's, what is it? Uh, I think, uh, I forget the time delay, but there's a few minute time delay from the earth to the moon for transmitting communications. And so, you know, it would take forever for every instruction to be sent from a server on earth to, uh, to the moon. I imagine you know, once you get it started, there would be a steady stream, but then there would, the feedback coming back to the earth would take, would take time. Yep. And so you would have these delays. And so having uh, kind of this, uh, a, where you give it a, a general command and then it can perform uh, autonomous driving and navigation would be really important on the moon. That's Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's where that, I think, well, I'm sure he was interested in that. And I know he started um, a company called, I think, Astrobotics that is still working on, you know, developing moon landers and things like that. So he's very interested in that. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and what did you, what was your take on uh, um, the Prius, you know, Google car uh, while it was driving around? Was that an impressive piece of technology? You know, did you think that the Waymo and the uh, Google project is, the future or are they have they gone the right way or is there um, is there something that you see on yeah that? i mean i think all that is i mean it's all good stuff um you know i think that tesla just because they have so many cars collecting data has a humongous advantage um you know if you go back to what i said earlier where it's about it's about amassing data on all possible scenarios you know, Tesla's way, way, way in front of everybody on that. So, yeah, I think all those companies are great. They're doing good work. Um, they just, you know, because they don't have, I guess, you know, as quite of a well-known name as Tesla, you don't quite hear about what they're doing and what they're collecting. But it would be surprising to me if any of them had the same kind of training data and test data that Tesla's uh, accumulated, which I think is definitely a competitive advantage. Do you think that uh, the the game is to collect more data about the world? Meaning, that, let's say you get uh, everything down to the digital uh, map, or do you think it is to build a more robust neural net that's capable of adapting to its inputs? Um, so I don't think you can ever build a reliable model of the world that's, you know, good for more than a, you know, a few seconds. So I think it's collecting the data so that you can build a neural network or whatever expert system or deep learning system you have to better be able to generalize to new scenarios, to learn the existing scenarios and generalize to new scenarios. That's where I think the data comes in handy. Um, and you know, there's, there's problems there too, right? You need to, you can't just throw all the data in. You need to be selective about what data you show the learning system and, and all that kind of stuff. But that's where I think it comes in most handy. 
Now you mentioned before that uh, whenever you got to a new road or a new train, Ralph was programmed so that uh, it could learn the new road. How did it learn the new road? Um, so it basically just extrapolated. So it made an assumption that if you're on a road, the road isn't, you're not instantaneously going to go from being on a road to not being on a road, which means that the, there, there would be some linear features that would continue in the direction of travel. So it could adapt extremely quickly, like, you know, less than a second to, from using one set of linear features to another set of features. So for example, if you're on an asphalt road, maybe all you have is the lane markings. Well, if the asphalt road changes to a concrete road, well, all of a sudden you have the lane markings, plus you have the seam between the concrete slabs down the center of the lane, plus you have a, a discolored area in the middle of the lane where the oil drops make the light colored concrete darker. It could adapt to that almost instantly. So that's how it was able to kind of keep driving on these various road types. What happened when you hit a gravel road? How did it, uh, what did it do there? Because there's no markings. On yeah, so for road. gravel, uh, the shoulder to road boundary would often be used. And also, if you're, you know, at least the gravel roads I've been on, and, and I grew up in a rural area, the gravel roads there, you have like ruts where the gravel's less thick or it's more dirt or sandy. And sort of like, um, lanes in a snow-covered road. Ralph could adapt to using those linear features as well. So it didn't need markings. It just needed some linear feature in the direction of travel. So if, did you hit any, when you were going, uh, hands, I think it's called Hansbury across America. Uh, when you were, when you were doing that experiment, did you encounter any road construction where there were, uh, cones or, uh, some sort of markings like they have those little orange things that uh, come up uh, look kind of like posts you know that that direct you in a a certain direction there's no real markings they're just a whole you know evenly spe spaced orange objects that kind of give you a general flow where yeah they, i don't remember did you ever so i don't remember those? anything like that the the only construction that i remember that really gave us problems was we were in Missouri at nighttime. It was a freshly paved road. So it was pitch black. There was no markings on it, pitch black, except what they did was about every hundred feet, they put down a three by three inch square of retroreflective tape. And that served as the only lane marking. You know, and for a human, that's fine. You know, humans know, all right, I'm gonna stay to the left or the right of this marking. But that wasn't enough features for Ralph to work, so it didn't work very well there. It didn't work at all, really. There. What What did it try to What did it try it, to do? How did it deal with? So that I, basically, it just gave up. It said, "I, I, you can't, you know, you can't hit the button. It won't engage." It knew it was not. It knew that it knew it was very uncertain, so it didn't even try. Oh wow. Yeah, interesting. So if, if you think if you were on a snow packed road, let's because there's a lot of scenarios where it could happen like that, like you, you lose the markings, like what what do you think it would have done if you it started snowing and then there was a light layer of snow over the road so that you could not see? the Yeah, well, we that happened. 
Do you think it would track. treat it like it a follows track, the bro? tracks? Is what it does. It it sees the tracks of tire tracks of the preceding vehicles and uses that as that the linear feature. Um, if it was just a completely you know freshly snow blanketed road, I mean, just like a human, it wouldn't work. That's interesting because I would almost think it would treat it almost like the uh, gravel, where it would look to the the, the ruts on the side of the road and say, okay, that looks like it's a rut. I don't want to go over there. It's linear. Uh, I'm going to say on the semi-flat area, but I guess that's how we would do it too. We would kind of make these guesses ourselves because we can't really, you know, see out that far. And we're just looking at the flat surfaces in front of us and making judgments that that's road. That's not. Yeah. Road. No, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, it, the system would obviously try but the further away you got from, you know, consistent feature of some type, the less less reliable it becomes. I was wondering, last question I have is, have you ever thought about building, uh, using uh, an algorithm similar to Ralph uh, with maybe like a small LIDAR or uh, maybe not even LIDAR, just, just with uh, just the image processing as a low cost uh, camera technology and uh, building a <laughs> lawnmower. Uh, and so, it, because it seems like it's such a, a, a crossover technology because you would, and again, that would not be an insult to your intelligence, but it, it, it would be interesting because you could apply it to a golf course. Uh, there's certain, you know, areas that you want it to mow and, you know, it would have to uh, have this idea of where what areas are flat and should be mowed and which ones aren't. So it's not like trying to run over, uh, you know, bushes or and, and maybe in certain areas uh, that it has uh, a special algorithm that kicks in and it mows, you know, really low to the ground uh, where they do the kind of, you know, special uh, yep. putting, you know, putting turf. Um, have you thought about something so, like that, where it's you no know, not as dangerous as maybe driving a car, but it's you know it's it's a something that could be very useful, like uh, so. Golf about course. twenty years ago, we worked with John Deere on that exact thing, uh, and in general, you use GPS is the way to do that. Uh, perhaps with some local sensing. What it turned out was that at least back then, the accuracy you could get for GPS wasn't, even if you were down to a foot or so, that wasn't quite good enough to do what you're talking about just because of how they expected things to look. Um, also on many of these courses and same with, you know, or, or suburban houses, you know, trees definitely interfere with the GPS signal. Uh, and I guess there was a sense that it wasn't worth, you know, putting infrastructure in to set up barriers, you know, like buried cables or something, say, don't go past this spot. So, you know, those were technical reasons. And I think the other reason is all that equipment is very cost sensitive and they didn't feel like they were ever going to achieve kind of cost parity with it. So, it, I, you know, they went pretty far down the technical path, but it never made it to commercialization. Yeah, and, and uh, I can see that with the GPS approach. And, you know, they have tractors now that use GPS to plow the field or, you know, 
put rows in the field perfectly. But, uh, you know, uh, lawnmowers are kind of following this insect algorithm where they just kind of uh, wander statistically over your your lawn and then you have to bury guide wires and, uh, you know, you don't get a nice, you don't get a nice edge cut. Whereas, you know, a, a, a robotic vacuum, it'll, it'll bump up against the edge and it'll kind of like, uh, I'm not sure what the algorithm is, if it's a worm algorithm or what, but it, it just stays right along that edge and just kind of pushes along there, cleaning that edge as best as it can. Uh, but it, it just wanders statistically over your surface. So you have, uh, you have to let it run for a long time and uh, you hope that it covers your space versus something that ha- could see and had neural net and stuff and that could learn its terrain. Yeah, no, incredible. absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, our time's up. Uh, what was the, the best thing you remember about graduating from CMU? I guess that now that you're, we talked about your road there, what was the thing that you, when you look back, you think, wow, that was a Well, clearly it was the no hands across America was the, you know, that was the number one thing. And then our automated highway system demo in 1997 was, I was, I had graduated by then, but that was the, the second best thing. Yeah, I agree. That, I was telling uh, one of my friends about that, how uh, that, they everyone thought well the future has arrived and i can kind of see how uh they they thought that but I, they were pretty presumptuous in my mind to believe that the future <laughs> yeah that quick yeah exactly you know because so so much money and infrastructure has to go into building anything that moves into yep. production as you know absolutely well thanks again todd this was a very enlightening discussion and i appreciate Uh, No problem, David. Happy to do it. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you.